0: Uh, good morning. So good to see you all this morning. Um, I, I'm thankful that God has brought us out as we start a new book, the book of Romans. I just can't tell you how excited I am to be in this book. I won't, I won't bore you again by saying this is my favorite book. Uh, the Lord does that every single time we start a new book. But, um, you know, I, I'm praying we get through two verses this morning. I, you laugh. If you've been, if you spend any time in the book of Romans, uh, the Lord's going to knock our socks off. The Lord's going to knock, be prepared for the Lord to knock your socks off. This book is a beautiful book. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about it. Before we do that, I want to just draw your attention to a couple things. One, I put this out on the table out here. I just made a copy this morning. Uh, what this is, is really the life of Paul as well as contemporary events that have been going on as we're studying, you know, God has created us as intelligent beings and we study intelligently. And so therefore I wanted to put this out here because what it does is it goes from about 36 AD, really all the way to 68. And that's, what's going to cover a lot of the epistles and the the books that we're going to be studying and where and how we date these things. If this is your first time to Calvary Chapel, um, you may think, well, two verses, that's not very much. But what we do at the beginning, and really what I do every time we begin a new book, is I bring everything back to proper hermeneutics and context. Because that's what God has told us to do. The Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. What that does is that protects us from getting off into a different lens or a different perspective based on philosophies. And I bring this specifically up in the book of Romans because many of men and women, have come to this book and come out of it with philosophies. And that's not our job. Our job is to take our presuppositions, and I'd ask all of us here this morning to take those presuppositions as best we can and lay them down. To ask God to prepare our hearts that when we come to his holy word, that we allow the Lord to speak into our heart, right? Exegesis, we call it. In the Greek, what does that mean? Exo, right? Out of, pulling out of. We've talked about that. We don't want to eisegete. Many of us have read the book of Romans many times. Some of us, this is our first time of studying it line by line. And the, the tendency of, of all of humanity is to hold on to what we know. But I believe God wants to do something very special with this flock, with this fellowship. And my prayer in heart is that you would, that you would lay this presupposition down and uh, we'd really hear what the spirit of God has to say to each and every one of us. Amen? Let's begin with prayer. Lord, Jesus, as you just overheard, God, we, we desire to meet with you earnestly here this morning. Lord, I am so excited, Jesus, that we are in this, uh, another book, a letter here, Lord. It's your love letter, God. As we read this book, we see your name, God, specifically you, more than any other specific topic in this book. It's about you. And so God, I'm so thankful that as we press into you, as that we open this book, as we come here today to be ministered to by your word, by your spirit, God, that you would just lay the cares of the weak aside. You'd allow us just to press in here in a, just a very deep and special way. Lord, as our hearts are prepared now, as we just worshiped you and we continue to worship you. Let us hear what the Spirit has to say, Lord. Let us, let us come away with hearts transformed, God. This book, probably as all books in Scripture, Lord, your power is in your word, and the word never returns void. God, we, we surrender here this morning. We give you all of ourselves that you would have your way in us this morning, God, unconditionally, just as Paul will write, Jesus separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that's our hearts here this morning. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. And just before we jump in, I want to give a quick praise report. Uh, Many of you saw the emergent email I sent out yesterday or it was the day before. It was yesterday, pardon me. And, um, we were pray, praying for Penny Deer's uh, friends, uh, specifically uh, a young one um, had gotten caught up in social media and she was abducted from her home at 1 a.m. in the morning. Um, obviously, any of us parents in here, that's, that's nothing to take lightly. We have children, we have grandchildren, we know of people that way. In um, social media, you know, we, need to talk, we need to teach our children about the, the, you know, what's going on here and how there's people that are purposing to do evil. And we need to be careful. Well, I have a praise report because as I saw Penny this morning, I, my heart actually went, where are we? You know, we've been praying. I know the body's been praying here. And uh, they found her in Michigan. So praise God. Praise God for that. But now the parents are on their way down to Michigan. Is it Michigan or Minnesota? Michigan. They're on their way down now to pick her up. So praise, you know, just let's ask God. Just we're going to bow our heads here again and pray for travel mercies. For these parents going down, the devastation. I mean, I can't imagine as a parent. Um, Father God, we come before you again. We, we want to lift up Penny Dear's friends, Lord. We want to lift up this young lady. Thank you, God, that she's been found, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that you moved heaven and earth to reach this young girl. Lord, we pray right now you'd give the parents travel mercies, Lord. The hours would go by quickly. There would be safe travel, Lord. I, Lord, there would just be a, a natural desire to do the speed limit, Lord, when we you know, our loved ones, God, we, the, our, our hearts would be to go as fast as we can to get there as soon as we can. But Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would give them a peace, that you'd give them rest, that, that, that the young girl would be okay. God, I pray nothing, Lord, nothing was violated. Nothing was done there, Lord. I pray you protected your child. God, I pray for the dad and the mom. the most horrific thing in their lives that they could have ever have managed and their their little girl being stolen from them, Lord, being abducted that way. God, there's nothing that prepares us for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that the word of God is opened in their home and I pray that it begins to wash their minds. Lord, I pray you'd even bring them here, Lord, if it be your will, that we could embrace them and encourage them. And God, we know that all things work together. Even when we don't see the storm or circumstance, God, I pray you're drawing your your young believer, Lord, this young girl to you as a believer, Jesus. And I just ask this and we ask this together in unity and prayer through your spirit. Bring her home safely, Lord. Bring the whole family home. Bring them back, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. All right. So as we begin here in the book of Romans, as I typically do when I'm I'm beginning a new book, uh, we begin with an introduction. All right, if you've Spent time with us. You know, we do this for every book that we go, and we go book by book. That's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. Now, Romans is said to be the most theologically significant letter of the Apostle Paul. It changed many men's life and theology, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard that. I mean, Martin Luther, many of you have heard of Martin Luther. He was the monk, right? For instance, the impact on Romans for Martin Luther's salvation, right? And theology is, is pretty well known. You can read most books today and you can go back and you can read about that and, you know, justified by faith, right? Remember where Martin Luther had come from. He was focused before that in a Roman Catholic sort of system of works based mentality. And so as Martin Luther had come out of that, he began to sort of formulate by just simple reading, by laying presuppositions down. That's what Martin Luther did. He had to do that. He laid presuppositions down and he began to formulate his understanding of sin, right? The law and the gospel, faith, salvation, the righteousness of God, all as he began this intensive exegesis of this letter. In his preface to one of his commentaries, or his epistle in studying, if I can quote it to you, it says, This epistle is rarely, or excuse me, is really the chief part of the New Testament. Is is truly the purest gospel. You've, you've probably heard that quoted many times, but it's important in context because what he says after is just as important what he said about the purest gospel. He says, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, but can't we say that same thing about every book of the Bible? Word for word that we would study that way by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of our soul. When many think of Romans, and if I asked a show of hands, how many think it's a book of doctrine? Don't be shy. Raise your hand if you think it's a book of doctrine. We've got one, two, three, four, okay, five, five people think it's a book of doctrine. How many think it's a book of systematic theology? One, two, three, four, five, six, okay. Well, I want you to understand this isn't a book that was written as doctrine or systematic theology. What is it? It's a letter. It's a letter. In that letter, is there systematic theology that you may be able to take out of it? Sure. Is there doctrine that we may pull out of it? Absolutely. But we can't forget the fact that it's a letter. Because when we try to take the Bible and we begin to take a metaphorical approach to the book of Revelation, we do what? We err in our exegesis. We err in our hermeneutics because we're not taking a literal interpretation or narrative understanding of the book of Revelation. No different than if we came to the Psalms, which because it is obviously worship songs, things like that, if we took an exact literal interpretation of every little word in there, what would we do? We would interpret that incorrectly as well, potentially. So we have to treat each book, each letter, each work individually. And Romans is a letter right? It's most important. It's a letter. And why do you write letters? I know some of you are going, we don't write letters anymore. Why do you email? Why do you text? Why do you communicate? You're communicating something, right? You're communicating something. I still love letters. I still write letters sometimes. I love letters. Sometimes, you know, I can, my, you know, my bride, if she would write a letter or a note or something for me, you know, sometimes she'd put her perfume on it or something like that. Do you remember that? Those days, we can't get that an email, at least not yet. The computer doesn't, you know, spit out some, you know, I remember that though. I love my, I love some of you have these electronic devices. That's fine. Use whatever the Lord, you know, gives you. But I love the smell of my Bible. I love the feel of the page. I, I love everything about it. It reminds me of, you know, just pouring over and spending time with God, watching Jesus transform and change my heart. well, it's a letter. So it's written with a specific purpose here. The message and its teachings, just with all scripture, it's timeless. It's timeless. It it has a direct impact to you and I today. Now, when we study any book of the Bible, and I've said it over and over again, and you'll you'll hear me say it until the Lord takes me home, or we're raptured out of here, whichever comes first, right? That we do what? Context is king. Context is king in biblical, biblical hermeneutics we need to allow the word of God to speak for itself without mere reading. And again, man's philosophy. And I talked a little bit about that. Therefore, I think it's important that as we start this new book, as we start a new book here together in this fellowship, I think it's important that we go back and we examine where was Paul? Where did he write this book? What is the dating of this book? What is the context of why he wrote the letter? Because I got to ask you all friends, do what you see and what you experience, does that not affect or impact your lens? Right? Maybe your mood or, or if you're traveling for business and you're away and you're seeing something that maybe disgusts you, does that not make you want to retreat to your hotel room as an example and not necessarily venture out? Well, we're going to talk about that because that's what it means to take context into biblical hermeneutics. We don't just treat it as a letter. That's just a letter. We know it's an inspired letter from God written by his fingerprints, but nonetheless, he inspired a man. And that man had feelings. That man was looking at something. That man lived somewhere. That man was traveling somewhere. And that's the Apostle Paul. And we'll talk about that. If you would, briefly, just turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 15, verse 20. We're going to start to lay, I like to call it the bullseye of context. Any of you who've gone to seminary or, you know, studied hermeneutics, you're familiar with the bullseye. We start in the book, we start in the chapters, and we work our way out, right? Or work our way in. In Romans chapter 15 verse 20, Paul says that it was his aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest he should build on what? Another man's foundation, right? So here we see that the purpose or one of the things that was on Paul's heart as he was even writing this letter was that he was not looking to step on another man's foundation because Paul had already planted church in his second missionary journey, in his third missionary journey, right? He had already been out church planning as a missionary, but he had not been to Rome. He actually did not make it to Rome until after he met with Caesar. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but why was Paul writing this? He was writing a letter to, to Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians to exhort them, to encourage them. To do what? to live out the gospel. He's pointing them to God. That, that's a purpose of this letter. And yet men have created all types of philosophies from this and, and we need to be so careful of that. He says don't land build on another man's foundation. It appears that from this Peter because if he said this and he wrote this in Romans, what's that tell us? Does that mean Peter was there? No, because then what would that be doing? Laying on another man's foundation. So Peter wasn't there. We don't believe the apostles were there. And that's going to bring up a couple of questions. Well, then how did it get there? How did the, how did the Christian get there? How did the Jewish Christian get there? Who, who planted this church in Rome? Well, look in chapter one, verse 11, right? It says, for I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gifts so that you may be what? Established. Right? So clearly this is a church plan, if I can say it that way, or a, or a Bible study, maybe a house Bible study, right, at this point. Paul, at the writing of his letter, he hadn't visited this church plan. We can see that, and even from verse 13, he says, I desire to. We don't see the word ekklesia in here, right? Ekklesia. We don't see that word. What's that word mean in the Greek? We know that's church. Look at verse 7, right? To all whom are in Rome, beloved, God called to be Saints, we'll talk about that, right? We don't see it saying to the church of Rome. That's important. So how did the church plant in Rome get started? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a good question. (laughs) Paul went to, turn to chapter 16 in your book of Romans. We're gonna start ring fencing this here. Paul went on to mention 35 individuals by name. Of them, 27 were living in Rome at this time. Why is this important? Because we're answering the question. How did the Jewish Christian get there? Or, or how did Paul end up writing to this group of individuals that he had never met personally or physically? How, how, how did this happen? Well, clearly, if he's writing to these people... He must have met them somewhere, hadn't he? I mean, do you just write letters to people you've never met? All some I mean, of you are like, yes, we do, or emails, right? But but generally, you write to people you know, and if you're going to name people like that, or you're going to you're going to bring them up in reference, you know, not necessarily name dropping, but you're you're going to reference in some way. There's a relationship there, or you're saying, oh, such and such, you know, and I know this person well, and. What have you? And that's really what he's saying. He's saying, Paul says, oh, and by the way, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? And he goes 35 times, 27 of them actually being in Rome. He must have knew these folks outside of the Roman Empire. Paul established a church plant by doing what? Long distance. He established a church plant by long distance and he used letters to write and guide its course. That's the purpose of this letter. That's one of the purposes of this letter. Now, we need to kind of, again, draw our target. We need to kind of, who are we talking about in Rome? What, is, what was Rome like in that day? Well, at that time, it's believed by scholars, there were somewhere between one to two million citizens of Rome, right? Now, Rome, not unlike other areas, but, but specifically in Rome, there was a one-to-one relationship with their slave population. That means for every one Roman citizen, there was one slave like that. And, that. and that had a lot to do with the culture in Rome. Now, this isn't slavery, as we would say, by race or anything. It's not that. It, what we're talking about here is what, what would be, um, remember, they had debtor's prison. They had a lot of different reasons that you would indent yourself to another person, right? And so clearly, we have a one-to-one ratio. What that also tells us about many of the Romans is that they were not necessarily one to want to be caught up in some of the uh, maybe manual labor. They were more interested in being entertained. They were more interested in going to places and watching chariot races. And, you know, I often wondered if they had ever read the Proverbs about how a man isn't worthy to eat if he doesn't work. Or, he, you know, he doesn't even take his own spoon to his mouth. Well, that was the culture in Rome at that time. So... You know, you look at the numbers, if there was somewhere, and again, scholars say one to two million, that means that could be anywhere from really two million to four million living in Rome at this time. Because if you have a one-to-one with, your, with the slave population that way, you could end up with two million as a yield. You, you with me? You tracking on that? So just to give you some perspective, let's bring it home for a moment. We live in the Susquehanna Valley, don't we? That's Perry, Cumberland, and Dolphin counties. This is sort of that metropolitan area. And in 2017, it was an estimated population or it has an estimated population of 571,903 individuals. Okay, that's 2017. So think about this whole area. Literally, Rome would have been double or if you're counting the slave population, quadruple that number. Closer to what we would see in Philadelphia from a population perspective. Just to give you this idea of what this populace was like. You know, it would have been I think, I believe our county here, or should I say, I believe that's Susquehanna Valley, is the third most populous in the entire commonwealth or state of Pennsylvania. When you look at it in the United States, we're the 96th most populous area in all of the United States. And yet Rome was four times this. We're going to, I want you to remember those numbers. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Therefore, why am I bringing this up? Because it's highly suspect with all of these people, with all that's going on, that they would have congregated or come together in a single church, in a single area. It would have been scattered. It would have been all over. You would have house churches everywhere. So when Paul's writing this letter, he's going to be, in some ways, saying that he's writing to who? To all the saints, plural, the hagios, right, or hagios, Plural, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that. This is important. It's not just one individual in one church. Sometimes I think we read this letter and we think he's talking about like the church at Corinthians, Corinth, a single church. That's not who he was talking to. He was talking to many, many house churches, many, many groups like that gathered through this very large city, okay? Now, back to our point is how did it get there? Well, there's possible and probable scenarios. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, and you could turn there, hold your finger here, turn there in your Bible, you'll read in verse 10 there something very interesting. That's why I say we allow the Scripture to interpret Scripture. In Acts chapter 2.10, it tells us very clearly that there were those that had gathered on the day of Pentecost, Jews that had come for the feast. And as they had made their way back to Jerusalem and they were there in Jerusalem, what happens? All of a sudden they hear this breakout, this wind that had come. We know it was because the you know, the apostles and the disciples were gathered in the upper room, right? And they had come out and the Holy Spirit had come upon them, epe in the Greek, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what that's speaking of. And all of a sudden, Peter comes out and the the people begin to gather in this area. Remember, normally, you know, you have somewhere around, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people living in Jerusalem at any one time. Up to the feast days, you had a million people swelling in because people coming from Rome, verse 10 right there. It actually lists from Rome that people would come like that to come to this feast day. So they're all coming in, they're pressing in, and what do they see? They begin to see men talk in other languages. They naturally, initially, say what? You're all drunk. Remember that? You're all drunk with wine. And Peter stands up and goes, no, 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 brothers. And he begins to give them, or explain, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he starts explaining this gospel of Jesus Christ, it says they're what? They're cut to the heart. What does that mean? It means they're getting it. That means that their heart is being softened, and they're receiving the gospel. And as they begin to receive the gospel, what happens? They, they have this moment, and you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're, you're here this morning, you know that moment where you go, oh, man, what am I going to do? That's not me, and that needs to be me. You receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you have the question, how do I do that? We just had someone come in the church earlier this week, and they accepted Jesus Christ this week. You know, a young lady came in, and we had a great conversation, and we began to pour over the Scripture. And she'd heard the gospel, but not necessarily scripturally presented before. And she came to Christ. And I was just praising God as, as she had to carry on her day. She had to go pick up the kids and things like that. But it was the gospel that was presented. It was the gospel and the power unto salvation as the bible says right so here they are they're hearing this and they respond what do we do you you remember that response friends what do I do I I agree yes amen so be it what do I do now and then your friend that loved you told you you know, hop on one foot turn around and tap your stomach and rub your head right no no my friend was a clown okay so no he told you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, lord and savior believe on him very simple God made it so simple that way. So what happened? When Acts chapter two, verse 10, we see that there was Jewish men from Rome. They got saved. What did they do? Did they say, well, we're gonna now live here? No, they had what? Wives, they had families, they have children. So what are they gonna do after the feast is over? They're gonna go back, right? They're gonna go back home. And what are they taking home with them that they didn't have when they left? Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. When you have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, what can't happen, right? What can't you do? Oh my, you can't keep it to yourself. You can't keep quiet. It, the, Jesus said it can't be hidden even you know on a hill. You can't hide it. You can't hide it anywhere. You know We teach our kids, hide it under a bushel. No, no, no way, man. Can't be done. Can't be done. Well, so... They make their way back, right? To their home synagogues in Rome. And that's what begins the Christian movement in Rome. At least, that's what many believe. And that's what I happen to believe. Further, if you look at Acts chapter 18, verse 2, go ahead and turn there. We learn that Aquila and Priscilla, you remember them? Where did they come and meet Paul the first time? Corinth. Why did they come and meet Paul in Corinth? Because they were booted out, man. They were booted out of Rome. What happened? You remember, right around AD 49, right? One of the leaders, Claudius, at that time, he said, "Get out!" And so all the Jewish Christians or Jews had to leave that time because remember, under the Roman Empire at that point, they didn't understand the difference between you're a Christian, you're a Jew, you're a Jewish Christian. It was you're Jewish, and oh by the way, you're a Jewish Christian. You're all going. They didn't. They didn't. Um, they didn't know how to sort of compartmentalize or break that out. They weren't you know, theologically looking at it, going, do you know Christ? Well, you can stay. No, no, no. You know, you're Jewish. you're, You're going to the synagogue. You have to leave. So we see that they left. And where did they come? They just coincidentally came to Corinth as Paul's there a year and a half. And they begin to talk to Paul. And as a matter of fact, Paul meets them. And they say, hey, man, why don't you stay with us? And Paul's like, I dig it. I'm in, right? So he turns around. He moves in with Aquila and Priscilla. This, you know, you guys want to know what it looks like to be a dynamite ministry team, husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, right? That's a good study, just studying them. But anyway, he turns around, they comes, he starts living. And what did they share in common? They were all tent makers. What's that mean? They worked with leather. They were leather makers. They worked with leather that way. And so they began to work. But as they're staying with Paul, don't you think that at dinner sometimes? So tell me what Rome was like. Oh, man, Aquila starts saying, you don't know. Man, we were there. We were at Pentecost. You were at Pentecost? Yeah, yeah, we were at Pentecost. We came back home. And, man, we were on fire for Jesus. I don't understand all that, you know. And then there were even Gentiles. Gentiles were getting saved. People were coming, getting saved in Rome, left and right. you, You know, really, did the Gentiles understand, you know, did they, you know they, we didn't heap the law on them there, did we? Because these Judaizers have been following me all around when I go to Corinth, you know, Ephesus, you know, all these other churches. Man, they just keep, they just keep following me around and saying, oh, you got to be circumcised, or you need the law, or you need this. He's like, oh, no, that didn't happen in Rome. That didn't happen in Rome. We don't read about that. That didn't happen in Rome. He says, you know what, Lo? He says, it, it, there, there, there's a lot of, Biblical literacy, man. Not that we can relate today anymore, right? But, but there's a lot of biblical literacy, right? He says, what do you mean? He says, yeah, because you got some Jewish Christians which understood the law and understood Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, the entire account as it would to come through, the Davidic covenant and everything that included that and the promise of one that was Messiah that was written about through all of scripture. But then you have these Gentiles, they've never experienced any of that. And Paul goes, man, I know about that. He says, when I made a traveler, when I was traveling, I went to this one place one time, right? And I began to go in there and they were Gentiles and I started talking to them about the law and oh, it did not end well. I didn't, at least I didn't, think, a couple came to Christ but everybody else walked away. He said, for me, now I only preach Christ and Christ crucified. We read that in what book? The book of Corinthians, we're getting, we're getting our fingerprints. God's giving us the hints of where this is all coming from. Okay. He's in Corinth at this time when he meets a and Priscilla. All right. So it's coming clear. Okay. So then we're sitting there and they're talking, right? And he says, man, I, you know, they're all scattered now. But as soon as Claudius goes back, man, we're going to go back to Rome. He says, pray for the saints in Rome. Pray for those in Rome. Paul's like, all right. And when Paul says he's going to pray for you, Paul's going to pray for you. So you don't think that was on his heart? You don't think that was happening? That's why context matters. It's a letter. What was on his heart at that time? So, all of a sudden, you know, this is going on, and we read that, you know, this large population of Gentile Christian converts, everybody, they had to leave. You know, and it's interesting. I I can relate to this. This is how many Calvary chapels begin. Calvary chapel movement began... Began by house churches. Well, I mean, originally it was Pastor Chuck Smith, Costa Mesa. But then after that, what happened is, I mean, we have 1,600. The Lord has led 1,600 different churches all around the world, Calvary Chapels, and they start with Bible studies. Some of you are part of that, man. I, I, I'm from Rochester, New York. I didn't know anybody in Harrisburg. I didn't know anybody in PA. The Lord put it on my heart to come down here. I come down here now because I didn't know anybody. It's not like I could say, hey, man, could I use your house? although it did did cross cross my mind a couple times, I won't lie. I was like, hey, man, I just need a place where I can open the word of God and I know God will do the rest. Well, there was this place called Prosser Hall in Camp Hill. It was right next to the police station. Normally, this was a no-no for me, right? But praise God, I got saved and now I'm like, all right, I'll go into a police station. Fine, man. So we're right next to it and I go in there and I open the doors and all of a sudden, you know, we didn't like advertise it somewhere. I mean, it was on OPA, but we start, just teaching the word. And next thing you know, I turn around three years later this December 13th. And man, Lord, it's just like in your word. When the word is faithfully taught, you're the one that adds to the church. It's not through programs. It's not through entertainment. It's, it's not through any of that. It's simply teaching the word just like you did, Jesus. Line by line and verse by verse when you came and you went into the synagogues. Because people are hungry for truth. Well, Paul understood that, and he's writing to a group in Rome that were biblically illiterate. Just just keep thinking through that for a moment. All right, well, so we see that, you know, part of his intention to write his letter is to make sure that he knows that they're earnestly prayed for and cared for, and we'll kind of read a little bit more about that. But what we see here more than anything, I think, is that Paul, who was he called to? The Gentiles, Right? He was called to the Gentiles and rode to Damascus. Jesus Christ met him there. And his intention here is to spiritually adopt this flock in Rome. That's what he's going to do. He's going to care for them. And like I said, that's exactly what's happened in Capri chapels. People start a Bible study, man, and the next thing you know, Ecclesia. You got a church. Right? What is the church? It's not a building. It's a group and a body of believers. Right? So... It's interesting because it'll be almost three to four years before he makes it there after writing this letter. We don't think that was on his heart as he spiritually adopted these children, this flock, this fleet, you know, that was in Rome that way. You ever have your children go away for a week or something at camp or something? How do you long to be with them? Never adopt children. I know we have a family in the church that's going through that. They can't wait to be with them again. They drop them off and they're like, hey man, when are we getting together again with the kids? That's awesome. That's Paul's heart. That's Paul's heart here as an under shepherd. Now, as we look at chapters really one through three, and we look in our book of Romans here, this is the longest introduction, as well as my introduction. I mean, I rival Paul. This is the longest introduction, and, and this is part of what we do when we start a new book like this. You know, I, I get Paul run for his money there. But what is Paul going to be doing here in chapters one through three? He's going to quickly unite. The whole world under sin. That's what he's going to do in chapters 1 through 3 here. He's going to describe the human condition. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're well taught. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit speaks. This letter speaks to my heart. You see, I'm very aware that I've never arrived, and nor would I, without Christ. Well, we need to talk about authorship and we need to get moving on here, right? Roman claims in the introduction 1 1 to be written to the Apostle Paul, written by, excuse me, the Apostle Paul. Nobody really sa- seriously challenges this claim. Paul used uh, a scribe, a, a writer at that time, uh, Manuensis, I guess is how you'd say it, in chapter 16, verse 22. And we see this guy's name is Tirtaeus, right? If you want to look at Romans chapter 16, verse 22. This brings up an interesting challenge. Well, was this Tertius? idea or is this Paul's? Where are we at? Well, I'm glad you asked about that too. We call that textual criticism. So as we study the text and we look at it, how do we know what Paul wrote was not just a wide interpretation compared to a word-by-word interpretation that could be given? Again, I'm glad you asked. Because when you look at Galatians and 1 Corinthians and you engage in textual criticism, you will find the same vocabulary and vernacular used in all of Paul's writings. Paul writes a certain way. Paul has a voice. He has a voice. He uses certain vernacular and words. And we find those same things in Romans as we do Corinthians, as we do Galatians, as an example. Right? My pastor used to have a hat that said John Deere. It was green, looked like a John Deere. You know, the the superior um, company that makes tractors. I'm just saying, I love John Deere. All right, anyway, so that's not a plug for them that way, but love John Deere, man. So he's got the hat on, but instead of it being, how do you spell John Deere, anybody know? D-E-E-R, right? He's got D-E-A-R. How many people look at that cap Or maybe it's D-E-R-E, I don't remember, but D-E-R-E. But the point is, how many people look at that cap and they see D-E-A-R, and what do they say? That's a John Deere cap. Because what did they do? They made an association to the color, the green, the yellow, the writing. It's even written in the same sort of branding. That's textual criticism. You You have to be a critic. You have to come at it and go, no, that's not John Deere. That's John. He's my dear, right? As a woman would say, an example or something like that, right? But it's a good example of what we do in textual criticism. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had been a Christian missionary or preacher at this point for some 20 years. Just think of the experiences. Now let's talk about the dating. We read in chapter 15 of Romans, turn to 15, look at verses 22 through 29. This is very, very important. There's three destinations that Paul gives us that are part of his travel plans. What are they? Jerusalem, Rome, and Spain right? Jerusalem, Rome, and Spain. Paul is planning to go directly to Jerusalem as it states there in verses 30 through 33, and he speaks of that. He's planning to bring the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem an offering from the Gentile Christian church that he was led to plant in verses 25 through 27. So now we're starting, remember we just read the book of Acts, we should start to know what missionary journey Paul was on at this point. Because he wanted to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to give the gifts from the churches that he had planted. Now we're starting to get some, some guidelines or boundaries for dating. Right? Next it says in verses 24 and 28 that he's going to make a quick visit to Rome because ultimately, where is he going? Spain. Why is he going to Spain? Because Paul already told us he desires not to step on another man's work or foundation and the Bible had not been yet preached in Spain. So he's got Spain on his heart and God's sending him there. So he says in chapter 15, verse 19, that the gospel has been preached from Jerusalem all the way around where? Look in your Bibles, verse 19, Eloquium, right? Which is a providence of Rome. That's a providence of Rome. In Acts chapter 18, verse 11, we read that Paul spent on his second missionary jury a year and a half in Corinth, Right? And that he was moving his way or he was going to continue to Jerusalem for the feast day. Remember, he really wanted to get there. Then he makes his way through Ephesus, but doesn't really stop there. Eventually to Caesarea, then back to Antioch. And remember, all the brethren come out and greet him. And that really concludes his second missionary journey. But he hadn't yet brought gifts. It's not till his third missionary journey that he starts to do what? Collect gifts from the uh, Gentile Christians to bring back to the church in Rome to bless them. That doesn't happen until third missionary journey. So we know it can't be the first or second missionary journey. It's got to be the third missionary journey. When did Paul go to Corinth on the third missionary journey? Or when would he have been there? Again, I'm glad you asked. So after spending this short time, right, he begins his third missionary journey, but first he goes to Ephesus. How long does he stay in Ephesus? Remember, we were in Acts. He stays there three years. Three long years, by the way. The longest he spent with any one church. So after he spends three years in Ephesus, right, then he goes where? Well, then he's got it on his heart to bring Jerusalem, go to Jerusalem to bring these gifts to the churches that were planted there. Pastor, where do you get that? I'm, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Chapter 20, verse 16. And as we studied the book of Acts, that's why we started with the book of Acts before we went to Romans. It's very important. This lines up with the timeline perspective that we read in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. They corroborate each other, and of course they will, because it's the word of God, and it's perfect. You can't do this. You ever want to, you know, somebody says, well, how do we know the Bible's real? Bring them to Acts. Bring them to the Romans. Do what I just did with you, and say, now, how do you line that up? How do you line that up? Or go through all of 27% of the Bible, which is Prophecy. And explain to me how you could possibly know thousands of years in advance what would happen. It's supernatural. You know, we did this thing with VBS this year, and I'm trying to keep us on time here, so forgive me, but we did this thing with VBS. We had all the kids stand up, and each one shared with their neighbor, you know, Jesus loves you. I said, you want to learn how to be missionaries? They said, yeah. I said, great. The first thing I want you to learn how to say is Jesus loves you. So they went and shared it. They got all the way through the the group. But you'd get every like four or five, and they go, what'd he say? Or what'd she say? You know, they couldn't. Do you realize that the word of God, over 5,000 different copies like that, translations, everything that's gone on, 1% delta, only a 1% difference, and it's mostly, what is it mostly? It's mostly grammatical. Nothing else do we have as a published work that even comes close to that. It's supernatural. You can't make that up. You just can't. And so as we look at this in the dating, we can trust the dating here. We can trust as these things line up from a perspective. So specifically Luke, who is the inspired author of Acts, right? He tells us that Paul spent three months in Greece. Acts chapter 20, verse three. Right after Ephesus, January through March. Now what's in Greece? (laughs) Well, Ephesus, where he was already at. But what else is in Greece? Corinth. Corinth, the only other church that he had really planted really in that area like that. That's why it points us most likely to where he wrote that letter was in Corinth. So believing that Paul arrives, you know, in Rome, just to back into this for you, around 61 AD, he had a seven-month voyage. We just went through it, 1,000 miles on sea. He arrives there, right? Spent two years in house arrest in Caesarea. You remember that? Waiting his appeal to Caesar. If you back that up from 61 AD when we know he arrives there because we know he meets before Caesar, we have extra biblical writings on that, when he meets with Caesar and Caesar actually does what? He finds him innocent and releases him. It'll be three or four years before Paul makes his way back to Rome again because Nero, that's what we're talking about, Caesar Nero ends up committing suicide, as I mentioned at the end of the book of Acts. But just before he commits suicide, he beheads Paul. He martyrs Paul. So as you back into the timeline, it, it best to date this around 58 AD. It, we have to go with what we know extra biblically, historically, but also what, more importantly, the Bible tells us. Now, let's move into purpose. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep us moving here. But Paul was not writing this letter like he wrote other letters. How did Paul write other letters and epistles to churches? They were very what? Corrective. Do you notice that? To the church in Corinth? Where, oh, by the way, he spent quite a bit of time besides Ephesus, a year and a half. Hey, guys, stop doing this. Stop doing that. And where was Paul when he wrote the book of, um, of Romans? He was in Corinth. Remember what I started with in my introduction to my introduction? Do you remember that? When I said how our lens affects us. And if you remember what was going on in Corinth at that time, we'll talk a little bit about it. Where we even get the word to coronize, right? Not a good thing. We're going it's important because it's giving us context. So what was on Paul's heart as he was being inspired by the Holy Spirit? Because there's no coincidence that God had him in Corinth to write that letter. He could have had him anywhere. But there was something he was seeing in Corinth that God was mindful of for him or telling him to be mindful about that as he was writing to the church or the, the church plants in Rome. Because that's going to have everything to do with the letter compared to the letter to Corinthians or, or, you know, any of his other letters. The Thessalonians is an example, right? Galatians. This letter appears to be bought by natural reasons. Paul was going to stop over in Rome to make his way to Spain, right? Who was this letter taken over by? Romans chapter 16 verse 1 tells us it's Phoebe. Phoebe's from Centuria, right? She's the one that brings this letter there. And then who is the letter addressed to? Well, chapter one and verse seven tells us, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, hagios. You're a saint. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. There are some people that believe saints are only those that have to die first and, and then they're, you know, their bones are you know, put together under an ossuary and the whole thing like that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches hagios. It's a very simple term, and he says, to you all, they're alive, right? Gives you a whole new idea. Next time you see that little saint sitting on the dashboard going, you know, ringing around like that, no. And Aren't you glad somebody didn't say, well, you're a saint. I'm going to take you and throw you in the backyard, bury you down, right? Face you this way. No. That's not what God said. Hagios. Some of you are going, oh, Pastor Matt went there. Gosh, can somebody clean that up? No. But it's real, Because that's how false doctrines get spread. That's how religion begins instead of relationship. It's important. We need to be students of our word. And the Bible said, you and I are hagios. We're we're saints, right? We're saints that way. And that's who it's addressed to. And he's writing to, again, the Jewish and Gentile Christians here that come to faith during the Passover, we already talked about, or those after AD 49 when they were booted out, right? Now, Paul has many for purposes here in this letter. You know, think about all his three missionary journeys. I mean, all this must have been top of mind as he was in Corinth, smacking him in the face, lots of, lots of prayer going on. I mean, he was seeing a lot of things. We talked a little bit about Corinth, but just to refresh your memory, I'll kind of go and just bring this up in, in context and purpose. Because as I mentioned, doesn't visual perspective impact your mental lens? There's no coincidence here where God had put Paul And the Holy Spirit inspires him to write this letter. Haven't you heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome? So play the movie in your head now. Start to play this movie. Paul's witnessing all that's going on in the church in Corinth. He's there. He's written two letters to them. He's meeting Aquila and he's meeting Priscilla. He's hearing about Rome and he's hearing how they were kicked out of Rome, but he's hearing about all these Gentiles and Jewish Christians in Rome that are now scattered, Right? Possibly thinking about the impact. What do I mean by that? If all roads lead to Rome, then the idea is he's in Corinth. And if he's in Corinth, the population is very similar to the Susquehanna Valley, somewhere between five to 600,000. So that means it would have been Corinth, would have been a lot like where we are. You're going to get around. What do you think Paul did? He'd lock himself in a hotel room there? No. What did Paul do? He got out and saw the sights. And when he would get out and see the sights, what's he going to see? He's going to see excessive sexual immorality. Why do I say that? Because Corinth had the temple to what? Aphrodite. Who was she? She was the pagan goddess of love. So what happened is they had all over, they say, scholars say over thousands and thousands of temple prostitutes. So picture it, run the movie in your head. Paul's walking down the street, he's looking at the sights, he's there, he's writing a letter, God's putting on his heart to write this letter to Rome, he's looking at these things, and not only is he probably filled a little bit with sadness, I don't want to say disgust, that's a wrong word, but, but sadness because he's seeing these things, but he's being propositioned as he walks to a different place, and he's dealing with sexual immorality, he's dealing with all these things that are going on, right? It's also filling him with sadness, right? And, and so... Corinth was also host to the games, like the the Olympian, but they called them the Ismanian games, right? Or Ismanian games. They had chariot races, boxing, wrestling, and that's fine. But but they got into gambling and it became very much around entertainment. So all this is going on, and he's seeing this, and it's all reminding him of what it shouldn't be like. And he's saying if this happens in Corinth, if all roads lead to Rome, which is this big metropolitan, you know, met- metropolitan like that, metropolis. What's going to happen when all these Jewish Christians or all these Gentile Christians end up going back to Rome and they begin to learn these things? If somebody doesn't, you know, adopt them spiritually as an under-shepherd and pour into them the word of God, the biblical foundations, the literacy of what the Bible teaches, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is it's going to spread, but it's going to be a false doctrine. It's going to spread and it's going to be heresy. It's exactly what we're warning in the end times the days we're living, that there would be doctrines that would be espoused by men that would be taught from a pulpit that would lead people astray because they, they sound good or they tickle the ear, but they're not based on the word of God in context. Heck, most of them aren't even reading out of context. It's man's wisdom. It's topical. It's whatever you want it to be, whatever I kind of feel like at the moment. right? Where's the accountability in that? You go line by line, verse by verse, guess what? The Bible talks about some heavy things. Marriage, homosexuality, sexual immorality. We don't get to skip that. As a pastor, I don't get to go, you know, I'm not feeling this today. I'm going to upset the people. That's going to, no, no, no. We open the Bible, we read it, and when it comes up, we talk about it. That's the Word of God. That's what calibrates us. That's what washes our mind. That's what Paul knew the Romans needed because they didn't have that underpinning. And he was already seeing what happens in Corinth when you, the Christian church there, by the way, this is the Christian church in Corinth. He already in to see what happens in Corinth. He had just gone through Ephesus and stayed there for years. This was a burden on his heart. This was a burden on Paul's heart. He was concerned for this. Well, I know this is gonna be hard for us to relate to today, and I'm gonna say that with a little cynicism. But it was a place Corinth, where the world's wisdom reigned. How do you know that? 1 Corinthians 3.18 tells me that. Sexual immorality was present within the church, right? Man having relations with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5. People suing brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 6. Marriage issues, 1 Corinthians 7. The proper behavior for singles and widows, Right? Again, 1 Corinthians 7. People actually getting drunk at the communion table. 1 Corinthians 11. Do do you see the gross immorality that Paul was experiencing at that moment? And the church in Corinth where he was. And now he's thinking the metropolis over there in Rome? And I am not there or God, you know, who's God sending or got there? And it was his desire to go there because he knows that all roads lead to Rome. And if this false gospel gets there and spread and permeates, what's going to happen? Isn't it your prayer for the church today and the pastors that God raises up to stay in the word and return to the word of God? Isn't that your prayer as believers? Aren't you praying for our country, the president, the governor of our state, the commonwealth here? We have an election coming up. On the table out there, I encourage you to pick, out a, pick up one of the, the brochures. Look, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That's not my job. My job is to tell you to let the Holy Spirit be your guide. You, will, you vote according to what the Spirit of God is showing you, according to the Word of God. But we have a responsibility to do that. Just as Paul had this on his heart, we should have this on our heart. This is where God has given us. This is, this is our, our Jerusalem here. The Susquehanna Valley, this is our Jerusalem. Are we concerned about what's going on all around us? Are we concerned about our neighbors? Are we concerned about strangers? Is it on our heart? Are we torn up when we read about some of the things that are going on in this area? Are we torn up when we hear another church closes because they turned around and they, they got caught up in a program or an identity or an entertainment or something that sounds good and tickles the ears? you know of it. It's happening all around us. Most churches are getting smaller and the Lord is allowing truth to go forward. And this church is growing, not because of a man, because the word of God is being taught and people are hungry for truth. It's all points to Jesus, just like this whole letter points to God. So this is what we need to do. J. Vernon McGee, said it far better than I could. He says the picture of the gross immorality of the Gentiles in Rome is a picture drawn from the Corinth of Paul's day. Now, I don't know how many of you have studied the book of Rome. I don't know how many of you have thought about this in context. It changes everything, doesn't it? When you think of this letter and you think of how he's writing to Rome, it changes everything. It's no longer, "Hey man, am I going to get you know? Am I going to side more with the Arminians? Am I going to side more with the Calvinists? Am I going to be looking at this or am I going to be looking at that?" It's got nothing to do with the philosophies of men. You won't find those words in your Bible. There's no word that says Calvinist, Reformed, Arminius, Non-Reformed. But yet, men everywhere have taken this beautiful work of God and threw their philosophy on it. And that's why I asked in the beginning, please, brothers and sisters, lay your presuppositions down. Let's hear the word of God in context and what he's trying to say to us. Because we need this today. We're at a Roman's road. We're at a Roman's road. Not only in our days that we're living in the society around us, we're at the Roman's road. We're in the Sesquiana Valley. It'd be a beautiful place for God to do another revival, wouldn't it? It'd be a place for God. But how does that begin? When the hearts of his people cry out to God and say, I will not elevate man's wisdom over the authority and providence of his holy word. But that requires humility. And that's exactly what the world isn't teaching. But that's what you're getting here because the Holy Spirit and the word of God testifies to it. And all of us, man, we're all wrecked by this. Because we come in here with our ideas and ideologies of how things work. And God just washes us. And he's like, part your hair. And man, we're like, I never saw that. I never knew that he was writing it in that context. This is a totally different letter than what I ever thought before. I treated this like a systematic theology book. Instead of a love letter from God that he was ministering to my heart. And saying, watch, be careful. I want you to know who I am. And oh, by the way, I want us all to be united in the fact that we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus. And it's Jesus where we begin. It's Jesus where he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He tells us that and he tells us in love. It's a book of love. He says grace and peace. What's the key theme of this book? What's the key theme? The righteousness of God, right? To Paul, the gospel was a great unifier, as I just mentioned, Rome with the center of the world for the Gentile believer, for which Jesus Christ died for. The Susquehanna Valley is the center, literally, you know, when you look at where we're located, you got Pittsburgh, you got Philly, we're right in the middle or near the middle. Aren't we that center? Where Jesus Christ died for the Susquehanna Valley, he died for the whole world. I'd like to read another quote from you from Jay, Vernon McKean, and, and I appreciate your time. We're, we're almost there. We're going to go a little over than our normal time, but it's important we get through this. And as we go through this afterwards, we'll come next week and we'll, we'll go line by line, or not, sorry, the week after we'll go line by line and verse by verse. So this quote from Jay, Vernon McKee, oh, its just wrecked me. Let me state in a subdued language that Romans is an eloquent, and passionate declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ by a man who made an arduous but productive journey to die for Christ. If that doesn't wreck you, I don't know, is your heart beating? The one who died for him, Romans is more than cold logic. It's the gospel stated in warm love. What's the key verse of Romans? Chapter one, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Greek, not talking about, you know, priority but speaking of order. For it is the righteous of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So let's turn our focus now that we've had our introduction to this book. Let's turn our focus to verses one and two. Like I said, I didn't think we'd get very far, but verses one and two in the book of Romans. Now that we understand what was on Paul's heart as he was writing this, the first thing we're gonna see in this chapter, and I hope you see the same thing with me, is the Christology. That is the theology relating to the person, nature, and role of Christ. It's the foundation of this letter. Paul's understanding of Christ is the only topic of point. Romans chapter one, verses three and four, if you look there, begins with Paul describing the content of the gospel in terms of through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Christology, right? So let's look at verse one. Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christos, I I could do it in Greek, but it doesn't matter. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Let's take that apart. We're gonna go word by word, not line by line. Word by word here. Paul's self-identification, right there in verse one, Paul says, I'm a slave. Right? But I got a question. Isn't everyone here a slave to someone or something? Really think about it for a minute. Either slave to a man an ideology, an object that you might worship, or something else. But you're a slave to something. Even a born-again believer in Christ, we're a slave to someone. We have a master. His name is Jesus Christ. It's doulos. But it's an interesting term in the Greek, this bondservant, when you really take it apart. And, and, and as I was raking my notes, I said, Lord, who is it that people say that Jesus is? And it really comes back to that question that Jesus said. He's I mean, obviously God's brilliant, but he's so brilliant because you look at it and you're like, it's, it's everything. Who do you say that I am? You know, who is Jesus? Well, <clears throat> you're gonna either worship man or the God of the universe. Well, the word, like I said, for slave or bond servant, here's doulos. This is where we get our understanding and position in Christ as disciples. Pardon me, I'm gonna cough. So what is a bond servant? Well, this word is used over 127 times in scripture. The usage here, however, because there's three different usages you can have for doulos and bondservant, specifically one who gives up himself to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. That's, if you look it up in a lexicon, that's the exact usage here. Morris, a scholar, put it this way, just a simple, beautiful way. A complete and utter devotion. A complete and under devotion. A willing, because bond servants are willing, right? Utter devotion that way. Friends, is that you? That was Paul. His master was Jesus Christ. Now, Christos, right, in the Greek, Christ, the anointed one. That's not his surname, right? You're with me? It's not Jesus of Nazareth, right? I'm just starting at the basics. I don't know who's here. I'm starting foundational, Right? That's who Paul's master is. It's Jesus, the anointed one. So who's your master? You have a master. Either you've made yourself a master, you've made other people masters, you've made other objects, but who's your master's one? Get that question answered before you leave here. Who's your master? You know, Capital One has this cool commercial. You've seen them. They all come out. They're all different. they are you know, branding, and you know, really smart people think all these things, but the question's all wrong, right? It's who's in your wallet? just once I wish they'd come out and say, who's in your heart? Who's the master of your heart? Now, that's a good question. Who's the master of your heart, right? Paul begins by making sure everyone reading this letter knows what Jesus, Paul is talking about. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Next we read, he says, call. Now, in your Bibles, you might see here, some people have it italicized in the King James and different where it says to be, and it's an italics. That is what the interpreter did when he was uh, trying to make it relatable to the translation of our day. But that's added. That's not <clears throat> in the original manuscripts. You should read Jesus Christ called, not to be called. Called is the proper in the Greek. If we're taking this correctly. You know, and what's that about? Well, if you remember his road, his Damascus road experience in Acts chapter nine, that's what it is to experience Christ. He was called, wasn't he? He, he had that experience. He saw the bright light shone down. It says he falls down. Actually, we learn later on in the book of Acts also that others people there heard the same thing, that they heard the audible voice, but they didn't know where it's coming to, and they too fell to their knees. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those that say, I'll never do. Oh, yes, you will you will. Everyone will. Well, here they fall down, and what happens? Paul has this experience. He's looking at, if you weren't with us in Acts, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's, well, he's hearing, I should say, the voice of the Lord. He says, who is that? Who is that? And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And he says, who is this Lord? And he says, it's I. It's Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. Why have you been kicking against the goats? We're the pricks. Why have you been doing that? In other words, what is he telling us? He's saying this didn't happen all of a sudden. It wasn't on the road to Damascus the first time that Paul has this moment with Christ. What this tells us is he's been kicking. You know what the goads are. You know, when you had a... um, you know, uh, an ox in front of you and, and, and you had something you were riding behind it, you know, whatever carriage or contraption and they had spikes that would come out and if the animal tried to kick, you can't see my leg, if the animal tried to turn around and kick like this, what would happen? He'd hit the spike or the pricks and it would, con- oh, you know, oh, no, I shouldn't do that. It was a constant, oh, that's a reminder, right? I'll give you all the same thing, right? It's the, yeah, over here, right? It's the same idea. You, you don't do that. You're kicking against the goads. What's that tell us? Paul had been doing this. This wasn't something that was the first time. Paul had been doing this, and when did it begin? Well, certainly it began in Acts chapter 6 and 7, where we see Stephen. And Paul was there, and he had the clothes, and they're laid right at his feet. And as, as the clothes are laid at his feet, Paul consenting to it, Stephen's martyred. And I can't help but thinking, this is my deacon. Deaconos. This is the one I'm looking at. This is the, the deacon Stephen who was there to wait the tables that that when the brethren got together said this is a good man. He can serve. He, he, he's got a good reputation. Deaconess, women, the same thing, can serve. They, she has a good reputation. And he, and, and he was martyred. And Paul was consenting to it. And God was yelling and Saul Tarsus. No! He's mine. And he, Stephen looks up and I... I I just believe, I'll find out when I get to watch the video back in heaven. But he looks right at Stephen. I've seen this. I can play it back in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong. This is me. This isn't the Word of God. I want to be clear about that. But he probably looked right in Paul's eyes Forgive them for what they do. Forgive them. Forgive him. You know, he was called. God had been after him. You know, it wasn't just the first time. Now, what was he called to be? Apostolos, right? An apostle. That's a delegate, a messenger. One sent forth with orders specifically, originally given to the 12 apostles. In our modern vocabulary, we've often used the term for it as missionary, right? Missionary, one who's sent. But I want to say this, and this is very important. I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but we certainly don't see anywhere in scripture where this term is used to define an office outside of the original 12 apostles. We don't see a modern day under shepherd or even in the disciple Through the word of God, afterwards being called an apostle. An apostle was one that was given the word of God, the original text of the word of God. The book of Revelation capstones that or ends that, if you will, and says there's nothing to be added or taken away from this word. If there is, it's an anathema, right? A curse. There is no modern day apostle. That's what the Bible teaches. You do that with what you want, but it said he was separated to the gospel. You know, a pharizo in the Greek, a pharizo, right? Separated, meaning to point, to set apart one, one for a specific purpose to do something. Single-mindedness on the gospel and the gospel alone. But then we got to define what the gospel is. What was the gospel? And there's many uses of the gospel, the word the gospel. The gospel is an account of life describing the deeds, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Nazareth. The Messiah, the people, right? The gospel, excuse me, of God. Now, we're going to conclude this. We're not going to, well, how are you, you guys doing all right? You hanging in there? You're not numb? You're not numb? Okay. Just want to make sure your body, your, you can move around if you need to a little bit. This is, this is we're just getting started. I promise to always try to be respecting everyone's time here as we go on through our further studies. It's just I don't want to break this up. It's so rich. I don't want to break this up for you. Other New Testament letters focus more on the church and its challenges, as I've already sort of described, right? Romans focuses more on God. God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. How can you say that, Pastor Matt? Where are you getting that from? Everything Paul touches in this letter relates to God. Everything. In our concern to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying about righteousness, justification. And like we not like, you know, ought to look uh, the concentration of God, if I can say it that way. The word God in this one letter appears over 153 times in the book of Romans. It's actually once every 46 words. Every 46 words you see the word God. This is more frequent than any other book in the entire New Testament any other letter, any other book in the whole New Testament. In comparison, just if you look at a frequency of words here, and this is important because there's a lot to this, and I will do this when I begin a book. I'll often take a frequency chart, and I'll look and see what are the words that are most used so that I get an understanding of what is God trying to communicate, right? Because he's got to do the work first of me, and then I can share, right? Well, there are words like law. Law is used 72 times. Words like anointed one or Christ, Christos right? Used 65 times. Sin, 48 times. Lord, 43 times. Faith, 40 times. You know, God, the term God 150 times is used twice as much as any other, excuse me, any other word that we see in this letter. What's it about? It's about God and it's about his love for us. And he deals with a lot of subjects in this book, and it, and it can be that. So, you know, at this point, we'll, we'll stop with verse 1. I, I really had given us, you know, the ability to go down to verse 2, but we'll, we'll stop there. I, I, you know, God is faithful, and he's spoken to our hearts here this week, and I know he's met us right where we are. And, and for some of you, you know, the, this is your first time here. No, we don't usually, you know, exegete every word. <laughs> but this is so important. This is the longest introduction of any letter. And God is giving us a foundation. He was giving this foundation to the church in Rome, right, that didn't have an ambassador there yet. So next week, uh, David Eichenmiller uh, will be sharing uh, here in the book of Joshua this next Sunday coming. Wednesday, I'll still be here, and we'll be going through Leviticus, and I'm very excited uh, for that. Uh, but it's Wednesday at 7 if you'd like to join us. But um, David Eichenmiller will be sharing from Joshua and uh, please pray for David, also pray for, I, for myself. I will be sharing in Halifax for Andrew um, while he's going to shepherd school. So we have a couple guys going out to shepherd school. We have Andrew, we have Reuben, and we have Steve Walters. All will be leaving on Monday to be going off to shepherd school for two weeks. It's an intensive. We meet up, they meet up at the castle, and it will be pastors like myself flying in and out. And we will be spending from about 7 a.m., all the way till about uh, 10 p.m. at night and nothing but the word of God. And we do a teaching and then worship for about 30 minutes. A couple more teachings, worship. It's, <laughs> there's nothing else like it. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. So those guys are heading out. Please pray for them. Pray for their wives. Pray for their families. Pray that the dishwasher, the furnace, the dog, nothing breaks, nothing goes wrong. Pray for me as I go out to Halifax. Andrew's been up there. Uh, sharing the word of God faithfully. There's a Bible study going on up there Sundays, and uh, it's a young it's a young church. What God is doing up there about twenty folks up there. It's beautiful to see, you know. Pray for him. Pray for that flock. Pray for me that I don't go up there and scare them all away from the word of God. Right? They're used to Andrew, and I'm going to open up the Bible. Oh, you know, they're going to be like whoa, right? Um, so pray that you know God gives me a word for them. Um, But then the following week, we'll be back in Romans, picking up again in verse two, and we'll be going on, and we're going to be studying something called the hypostatic union. And that's just a fancy theology term for hypostasis, which talks with the substantive um, reality of God. What do I mean by that? Uh, Because we're not theologians here. It's a study of the two natures of Jesus Christ, him being perfectly divine and perfectly human, 100% of each. It's called the hypostatic union, and that's what Paul's going to go in. If you look in your Bible right now, he's going to go right into that in verses, really, three, he begins that. Verse two is going to really talk about the promise of the scripture and how it testified to Christ, but then he's going to be going through that, and we're also going to talk about the seed of David, the Davidic covenant. So now you know why some folks come back and go, this is a book of doctrine. This is a systematic theology. No, it's a letter, but boy, it sure is good to understand this as we exegete the letter. Amen? All right, let's stand and pray. And thank you again for everyone's heart and patience. And uh, I know your coolies may be tired and asleep, <laughs> but uh, I use the kid term my mom used to use. I don't know why. But, um, you know, I just pray and uh, I just want to ask God changes our hearts here. You guys, you guys good with that? Pray for Jesus to change our hearts. Father God, we just uh, come before you right now, Lord. We thank you for this study and this time, Lord. We, Lord, we got into one verse. <laughs> Of your word, but, but Lord, as we did that one verse, we went through much of your scripture. Because God, you, again, you've knit this all together, Lord. Maybe for somebody, this is the first time they're seeing this all connected. And Lord, light bulbs were going on, you know, off. And people were seeing the glory of your word, seeing how you connect this, Lord, to know that you, Lord, you've, you've elevated your word over your very name, Jesus. God, I just thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the seeds that have been planted here. I thank you that just as Paul had said that we, Lord, can be bondservants, dulos, Lord, to our Christos, to our only anointed savior, our master. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone not in that right relationship here this morning, God, that you would establish it, that you would confirm it, that, God, you would work in the heart right now to take the seeds that are planted and just... Create a beautiful, long-lasting relationship. Lord, it's never been about religion for you. We don't even see that word in this letter. It's about relationship with you, God. So Jesus, we thank you. We want to be a part of it. Lord, continue to work on our hearts. And Lord, as you change our hearts, be so gentle, Lord Jesus. We know it's good, but often it's difficult. Please be gentle with us as you always are please keep us and protect us and bring us back together soon here, Lord. We look forward to our Wednesday night study in Leviticus, God, as you continue to bring us into um, all that you have to share for us and you are pointing it out as you, our chief priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time and God, I pray you would redeem it for the folks here this morning, Lord, as they've spent more time in your word that the rest of their day would go smoother because of it. I thank you for this all and we pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, give us travel mercies now. Amen. Amen.